Hello, good evening and welcome to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and to Mad Men, Mad Women. Um, I'm sorry if that uh, DVD intro on loop gave you some um, haunting reminiscence of, of falling asleep in front of your DVD player. <laughs> it was nice at first, it gave you the grab a cup of tea moment, but uh, perhaps a little too long. So tonight we are live in the studio with our panel, Debbie Anker, Mark Nichols and Sean Pryor. We unfortunately have apologies from Russell Howcroft, who will not be joining us this evening. I'd like to start by reading you a quote from season one when Don is pitching the Kodak Carousel. Nostalgia. It's delicate but potent. Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a twinge in your heart far more powerful than memory alone. This device isn't a spaceship, it's a time machine. It goes backwards and forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. There's something particularly moving in this passage that almost grants us permission to go back and look at what could be described as the wounds of the past, the overt sexism, the racism, the homophobia, and all of the uncomfortable inequalities it so magnificently dresses up and presents to us. I can't help but watch and wish, amidst the rage, that I could go back to an era quite like this one. Surely this isn't just me, and I'd be more than curious to see if you fellow viewers feel the same way. (coughs) I'd like to introduce our chair for the evening, Sean Pryor. Shant is a print journalist, a broadcaster, an RMIT lecturer and musician. Shant was an arts reporter and presenter for ABC Radio for eight years, including two years as presenter of the weekly Sunday arts program on 774 ABC Melbourne. She still presents and reports for Radio National. For three years, Shant contributed a weekly column to The Age called This Life, and her writing can be found in other publications, including the Sydney Morning Herald, the Courier Mail, Rolling Stone and Limelight magazine. She is also a trained opera singer, clarinetist who performs regularly in recital at arts festivals and with singer-songwriter Paul Kelly. Sean hosted, launched and curated a broad range of public and private events for arts organisations including the Melbourne International Festival of the Arts, the Melbourne Film Festival, the Melbourne Writers' Festival, the Australia Council and the Australia Film Institute. And just before we opened the uh, doors this evening, she was doing her sound check in uh, many different languages. (laughs) (laughs) So over to you, Sean. Thank you. Oh, we were just showing off, really, weren't we? (laughs) Well, look, um, welcome, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us tonight. I hope you've all had a nice martini or perhaps a little shot of whiskey out in the bar before um, joining us here to uh, get you in the mood. Um, and uh, yes, as Anna said, I, I'm your hostess for this evening's discussion on, on Mad Men, the TV show that I think has made us all take a long, hard look at the content of our wardrobes. Uh, and I suspect, again, as it, Anna alluded to, has made many of us simultaneously deeply disappointed and vastly relieved that we weren't young adults uh, living in New York in the 1960s. The series has become what they call a cult hit, in TV land, and maybe we'll talk more a bit later about what that actually means, but 
Judging from the absolute desperation being expressed on Mad Men fan sites as we're all waiting, waiting, waiting for Series 4 to hit our TV and computer screens, it's a show that has struck a chord with many, many avid screen viewers. Mad Men is a flashback to an era of economic boom, exquisite clothes and excessive living. But beneath the veneer of luxury and under the clouds of cigarette smoke lie a bunch of very uncomfortable questions about race, gender prejudice, social inequality, and about what exactly constitutes happiness in the modern world. So let me now introduce our two guest panellists. Debbie Enker is a regular columnist, reviewer and feature writer for The Age Green Guide. She's also the TV critic on John Fane's morning show on ABC Radio 774 every Thursday morning. You might have heard her this morning defending I Dream of Jeannie with quite some passion. <laughs> <laughs> I was cheering in my car. Uh, last year, Debbie, in fact, hosted a keynote address session with the Mad Men creator, executive producer and writer, Matthew Weiner, at the Screen Producers Association of Australia conference. So she's probably got closer to him than the rest of us have. Mark Nichols is a senior lecturer in cinema studies at the University of Melbourne. He's the author of Scorsese's Men, Melancholia and the Mob, uh, recently published articles on Martin Scorsese, Lucchino Visconti, Shakespeare in Film and Film in the Cold War, and also the forthcoming book Jeremy Irons and the Prince of Perversion. Mark's work as a film critic over the last 11 years has included regular reviewing and commentary for ABC Radio, and between 2007 and 2009 he was author of The Age, uh, EG's weekly film column, Buff's Choice. And they're both, needless to say, big fans of Mad Men. So the plan for this evening is uh, Mark and Debbie will each speak for about 15 minutes on different aspects of the show that interest them, uh, including playing us some clips from various episodes. Uh, and we're going to embrace the gender divide here tonight wholeheartedly <laughs> in true Mad Men fashion. <laughs> Debbie will talk about the women in the show and Mark will talk about the men. Uh, and then Mark, Debbie and I will have a conversation for another 20 to 30 minutes about some of the things that interest the three of us about Mad Men. And then we'll open up the discussion to you um, to put any questions or comments that you might have to the panel. We might even put some questions to you because um, I'm certainly fully aware that many of you will have an even more arcane knowledge of this marvellous show than, than I do and uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. So we'll finish up sometime between 8.30 and 9.00. And uh, just a little reminder if you could turn off your mobile phones before we get started. So if you could please make Dr Mark Nichols very welcome. Thanks, Sean. Um, I'm sure Don Draper would not approve of the men going first, uh, being such a gentleman and highly aware of the, um, uh, the right way to do things, but um, I'm happy to go first. Um, what I want to do is particularly... Um, so I'm just trying to make sure none of this falls off. Um, what I want to do tonight is to start uh, and particularly focus on Don Draper um, as a way to talk about the way the series deals with masculinity. Um, we've seen, particularly in Series 1, Betty um, put onto the couch, so I want to put Don on um, for a bit of a go-around as well. Don, who is so um, seemingly resistant to psychoanalysis. Don's an interesting, and I'm going to use the word character, although I'm going to question that a little later. We see Don as a child. We see Don as a Korean War veteran. 
an ad man, uh, sort of a husband-father amalgam. We see him as a philanderer. And I think perhaps I can say that we also see him to a certain extent as a kind of a fellow traveller. Perhaps some of us see him as a fellow traveller. Perhaps that's the guys. I suspect more than just the males in the audience um, may see something about Don that just sets off somewhere deep within uh, each of us. Otherwise, I don't think we'd have a show. Don is a gentleman. He is somewhat buttoned up. He can be a friend. He can be a harsh and cruel boss. He can be cruel to all sorts of people. He's creative. He's sensitive. He can certainly be unfaithful. But I think he has a capacity for fidelity. Sometimes I see Don, and I may be thinking a bit too much about 30 Rock, but sometimes <laughs> I see him as a bit of a geek, a bit of a nerd. Um, he's, up, he's so buttoned up that when he breaks out into a smile, he does look a little bit nerdy to me. Um, he can often be bemused, and sometimes I think he's quite scared. Above all, uh, he is uh, alternating between a character of great responsibility and, I think, this incredible longing that Don has for release, to get out, to move on. Like Freud's question, which the boys in, in um, Sterling Cooper ask as well, what do women want? I want to ask the question, what does Don want? Or rather, what does Don believe in? That is, what can he... Um, what, can he, what sense of faith does Don have, if any? I also sort of want to start with a, with a kind of a question about can we consider Don as a character or a protagonist as narrative and theories of narrative might define such a thing? Is he a trait-oriented, goal-oriented, knowable character in, in, the, in, a, in a perhaps a limited classical sense? Or is he a more open than that? Is he um, open as one would hope that all characters should be to um, a great many different um, opinions, uh, attitudes, vicissitudes of, of behaviour? Or is he, in a sense, too open? I sometimes wonder that across the three series that we've seen now, we've seen so many sides to Don's character that I think perhaps maybe Don works as a kind of open text. Um, and does what all great melodramatic characters should do and allows us to kind of put ourselves inside him. And so that raises questions about... I don't think it raises questions about good or bad writing, but in a sense, um, or anything like consistency of of characterisation. But he seems to be everywhere and everything and and sometimes highly contradictory. As Sean said, I've always had a research interest in the question of melancholia. I see melancholia as a an affliction that we like to validate in popular culture. Um, The melancholic has a a sense of great loss. Um, He uh, uses that loss to separate himself, to create very often himself uh, as a sort of a man apart character. Um, And ultimately, as we see um, particularly in in films that I've been working on, like Martin Scorsese films, um, often he's a character that achieves some sort of public validation and I think much of what we see with Don is, um, is consistent with this notion. I would kind of ask you to think about however if Don has a sense of, of loss a sense of loss that we can identify to me this is a really interesting question about who is he, what does he want, what does he believe in. Does he demonstrate a, 
an idea that, that somewhere deep inside uh, there is something that is not there, and I think that's true, but what is it is the question. Is he perverse? Again, uh, another area of interest that I, I, I have with when I look at male characters in film and television. Um, certainly, he has... Um, a very great ability to go the other way towards a certain sense of being antisocial, um, wanting... I mean, I think there's a great moment when he's made partner in series one um, and, he, you know, as he always does, refuses to, to um, make it a contractual arrangement and, and Bert Cooper says, ah, beware the nonconformist, which is exactly what he is. And socially, going the other way, the rebel, I think there's certainly a very strong sense of that uh, about Don. I was kind of trying to think about some kind of vaguely contemporary examples of characters from film um, particularly uh, that we might want to think about um, with Don. And I think I'm right in saying that the first major Hollywood actor that's mentioned in the series is Paul Newman, yeah, with Exodus. And to me, I started thinking about a lot of those early Paul Newman films. There's a film particularly I'd like to um, draw to your attention. It's not very well known, unfortunately, called The Young Philadelphians, uh, made in 1959, where Paul Newman... Um, we finally got him off the farm and finally got a shirt onto him and a jacket <laughs> and tie. But he's still a little bit of rough trade there. And there's a very interesting... Um, he also is a, a, um, a Korean War veteran, dubious parentage, dubious background, but very chic and... He's Paul Newman, we love him. Uh, but he does demonstrate um, certainly a, a sense of loss but also an idea of perversion that makes me think that that is a kind of example that... Um, Matt Weiner has in mind when he creates this kind of uh, character of um, Don Draper. What I think is interesting about these um, characters who are Korean War vets in a lot of these films is that I suspect often that they've read The Man in the Grey Flannel Suit. They've read Revolutionary Road. Wouldn't have seen the films. Although Man in the Grey Flannel Suit was a 1956 film. But they've read these key iconic novels of the mid to late 1950s and early 1960s and they're damn sure they're not going to make the same mistakes that the, first, the Second World War vets have done. They don't want to carry that sense of disappointment, the great GI promise of the post-war period, which was never realised. If you've seen... I hope many of you have seen Revolutionary Road, even though it's Leo. Um, you know, that sense, of, that sense of rage that those two characters have, that the post-war deal, they didn't get what they deserved, they didn't what they expected, and... and and it's the domestic setting, very much like where Don is. To me, Don becomes a character who is desperate to move away from that, to, to make sure that he, uh, perhaps unlike Roger Sterling, is going to be a smart cookie. Um, Roger's all passion, all, all, um, all emotion, um, all drinking and all dying in the arms of a 20-year-old. Um, I want to um, show a clip now uh, of, from the end of um, the first episode uh, the, the final few, uh, near the final few minutes of the first episode of the entire series where um, Don is having drinks with Rachel Minkin, one of his many brunette... Um, uh, he's always with a brunette extramarital. He's got a nice blonde at home. He doesn't need to go there again. Um, uh, and in a way, I like, I like what um, Rachel says and, and in a sense I'm really interested in the way Rachel um, sums him up and the way he kind of has problems with this. Um, and I think, you, you remember, uh, Scratch Charm had the, um, the clip up earlier about um, 
the idea about happiness. And, and, and remember, this comes after the lucky strike session where Don talks about happiness and that advertising is about making happiness and about um, giving you a sense that everything is okay. That this is something that I think for Don, he thinks doesn't actually exist, but it is something that he and his pals in the industry can create. And um, Rachel kind of counters with this. Thanks very much. The lady, a special thanks, <laughs> And one whiskey. Michelle, you're going to ply me with drinks and convince me what a terrible mistake I'm making. They just got a drink. <laughs> you got in trouble, didn't you? <laughs> I shouldn't have lost my temper, and I certainly shouldn't have treated you like anything less than a client. Apology accepted. So you understand? Now I do. It was, uh, refreshing, really. I mean, actually hearing all the things I always assumed people were thinking. Well, I'm a perfect bad for what I It's under a lot of pressure. Doesn't count. Doesn't really matter. No, it doesn't. So, without making things worse, can I ask you a personal question? Don't you want to get a second drink in me first? Why aren't you married? Are you asking what's wrong with me? It's just that you're a beautiful, educated woman. Don't you think that getting married and having a family would make you happier than all the headaches that go along with fighting people like me? I would be allowed to ask you the same question. And if I weren't a woman, I wouldn't have to choose between putting on an apron and the thrill of making my father's store what I always thought it should be. So that's it. You won't get married because you find business to be the thrill. That and I've never been in love. She won't get married because she's never been in love. I think I wrote that. It was to sell nylons. A lot of people, love isn't just a slogan. What do you mean love? You mean a big lightning bolt to the heart where you can't eat and you can't work and you just run off and get married and make babies. The reason you haven't felt it is because it doesn't exist. What you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. Is that right? Are you sure about it? You're born alone and you die alone, and this world just drops a bunch of rules on top of you to make you forget those facts, but I never forget. I'm living like there's no tomorrow, because there isn't one. I don't think I realized it until this moment. But it must be hard being a man, too. Excuse me. Mr. Draper? No. Mr. Draper. I don't know what it is you really believe in, but I do know what it feels like to be out of place, to be disconnected, to see the whole world laid out in front of you the way other people live it. There's something about you that tells me you know it too.
Don likes to talk tough, but uh, I think she calls him on that and um, hits him where it hurt, hurts. Um, in Don, to be an ad man, to see how people live um, and see the way they live, uh, is to be out of place and disconnected, she says. And perhaps this is the occupation of the outsider. The outsider, as ad man, can make life happy or thinks he can make life happy, loving, free from fear, um, and even when he knows, he, even all the time knowing or thinking in his own heart that nothing really exists beyond that. Um, he can even make it a woman who threatens him, uh, like Rachel Mencken, over, at least when he's standing around with his pals in the office. Uh, I think it's really interesting how um, the first episode, uh, just after this sequence we've just seen, ends with um, a rendition of On the Street Where You Live, which is, of course, from My Fair Lady. Uh, very much, you know, this is what Don thinks he is. He thinks he's this great Shorvian figure that can make over anything to create, create life um, into something that is smooth and bearable. Um, and he's got to. Um, we're going to talk a, a bit... We've already mentioned... Uh, Anna's already talked about the famous carousel sequence... Um, I find that an interesting kind of um, contradiction to what I'm saying, in a sense, because I think Don is so good at what he does, he's so good at presenting the copy that he can sometimes be mesmerised by his own copy, um, sucked into his own delusion about it as he, as he sees it. Um, and we're going, I think we're going to have a look at that clip um, before we finish. Um, Generally, however, I want to suggest, and, and in a sense, I, I leave this as an open question at this point. Hopefully we've got at least four or five more series to go, so I'm looking forward to having this really um, uh, you know, challenged and stretched. But generally, I want, to consider, I want us to consider Don as being something like the nihilist. Um, he reminds me a lot of a character played by Jack Warden in Woody Allen's 1987 film September. Jack Warden plays a, a physicist who studies the stars. Um, both these characters see the world, and particularly the universe, as random, violent, and ultimately meaningless. And both of these characters actually get paid to kind of prove it, which is the sort of scary thing. Um, there's lots of references to religion in the series, and I'll kind of finish with, by reminding you of that great Belle Jolie meeting in the first series where um, they present the um, uh, Basket of Kisses, I think, is the campaign. And um, the Bell Jolly people are having trouble with it. And Don just says, well, I'm out of here. You're obviously not interested. You don't have Jesus in your heart. And he gives this great speech about Jesus being in your heart or not in your heart and um, whatnot. And I think the thing about Don, and I'll kind of end on this, if I may, but I think the thing about Don is that he knows the power of Jesus. Um, he even preaches the gospel but 
Ultimately, I think the problem for Don, he thinks his problem perhaps, is that he doesn't have Jesus in his own heart. Um, he may believe in the old-time religion. You know the song? I think we hear it in one of the series, the old-time religion, it's good enough for me. He may believe in religion as an idea about the world, as a philosophy, as a way of dealing with the emptiness, the barrenness, but ultimately the problem for Don, I think, is that he kind of um, he doesn't believe in God. So I think in the situation there is that he, Don potentially sees the world as almost entirely barren and all there is is advertising and copy and myths of happy families to sort of fill that void. The problem for Don is that he just can't kind of get with it. He can't go with it. Um, we see, I think, Don, in, and we like to think about Don, um, you know, uh, with our sort of warm cups of cocoa on the couch. I think we like to see Don as having a problem um, and that he ultimately lacks faith in, in people and lacks faith in himself and lacks that faith in humanity. Um, but I think it's a really interesting question that the show ra- raises is that if the world is barren and he sees it as barren and, and there's nothing else, you know, what happens if he's actually right? And I think that's played with a lot, particularly when people like Kennedy get shot and there's Cuban Missile Crisis and, um, of course, when Marilyn goes, thanks. I feel like I should start by defending Leonardo DiCaprio in Revolutionary (laughs) Bone. I'm jealous. But I think we may have to leave that for another time. (laughs) Um, um, I know the show is called Mad Men, and as the title suggests, it's about men, the men of Madison Avenue, the men of the advertising industry in the 1960s in New York, the men of Sterling Cooper, all the smoking, drinking, womanising boys. And they are a fascinating group, as um, Mark has alluded with, um, with Don um, as the central character, but also Keenan Hungry, Pete Campbell and um, streetwise, cynical Roger Sterling. But... Um, one of the things that I think makes the series really extraordinary is its depiction of women. And though the title might suggest that's not what it's concerned with, I think it's given us some of the most interesting women on television of the last few years. Um, and I think that accounts for one of the reasons that it's been so successful. And it certainly is a surprising and unlikely success as a show. I mean, a, a brief run through the history... Um, Mad Men was the first scripted drama commissioned by a very little-known cable network called AMC. Um, they were basically... Uh, uh, basically, It was a basic cable channel, which means the lowest level of cable. When you subscribe, that's what you got. It wasn't even like HBO that you had to pay extra to get it. It was at the lowest level. Um, Matthew Weiner described it as being, you know, lower than free-to-air television. It was nowhere land. <laughs> and, um, and he said they didn't even run very good movies on repeats. Um, so this was the, the, the network's first scripted drama and it was designed to put them on the map to direct attention to them and it certainly worked. But it was a really unexpected success in so many ways. 
not the least of which was that no one had ever heard of this channel before, so there was a lot of concern in the first series as to whether or not people would find it at all. But there are other ways that it's a really um, unusual success. It's a period drama, which one would think, when one thinks period drama, BBC, corsets, not interesting. <laughs> there were no big names in the cast. Um, it, was very, it is very much about relationships and it's a relationship drama in a way at a time when crime series are phenomenally popular, when that's the fashionable genre on television. You know, we have franchises that are about crimes, m stories that have murders and investigation and action, stories that have a very clearly defined beginning and middle and end in that there's a resolution. And then along comes this show... <laughs> where Matthew Weiner has joked that action on his show could be defined as a ringing phone that's left unanswered <laughs> <laughs> or a, a tap running. You know, that means something's wrong, but it's not people running around with guns at crime scenes. <laughs> and it's also a show that gives you no idea from week to week where it's going and really no idea from the beginning of an episode as to where it might end up at the end. It's unpredictable. Um, and it's a show that demands close attention and it rewards close attention. But um, that unpredictability is really unusual for television. And not knowing when an episode starts where it might go, what the characters might do, how they might respond to various situations, is, is very unusual for television. These characters can really shock you and surprise you. Um, and I think one of the great things about getting involved in a TV series is that you have the opportunity to watch these characters grow and develop, that unlike a movie, say, you don't learn everything that you might ever know about them in the space of two hours. In the case of Mad Men, you know, three seasons, 13 hours each. These, these characters are really, when you've got a good series with good writers and producers, characters really have space to develop and grow. And what the writer, in this case Matthew Weiner, the creator, might imagine at the beginning is really informed and perhaps changed by what the actor brings to the role. And here, with a cast of actors, many of whom we'd never seen before, they've really created an extraordinary collection of characters that are very complex and, and, and nuanced and surprising. Um, it couldn't be said of this show, unlike a lot of drama series on TV, certainly on sitcoms, characters tend to be fixed and static. And on a lot of TV drama series, and I think here of CSI, they don't change. What they are at the beginning, they are all the way through. On Mad Men, they really do change. And one of the great mm. pleasures is watching them grow and develop. And it's the women... Not that the men aren't interesting, because I think they're fascinating as well, but the women in this show, despite its title, are just as, as well-developed, have just as much complexity and are just as surprising as the men. And it even extends to the women in the minor roles. Um, we just saw in, the, in that wonderful clip Rachel Menken, the Jewish department store owner, um, Midge, the first woman we see Don having an affair with, the, um, the graphic artist, the, um, Jane, the secretary who rises through the ranks to become the second uh, Mrs <laughs> Roger Sterling, and Trudy, the um, Upper East Side girl who becomes the wife of Pete Campbell. All these women who are not in the main female roles have a, a depth and a substance that is 
unusual for television. Um, and we've seen, and in that wonderful sequence with Maggie Siff, what great actresses they cast to play these roles. They give them such depth and they regularly have scenes where they surprise you. Uh, they say things about themselves, about their views of the world that are really challenging. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen um, season three. It was a great source of discussion between us as to how much we could reveal, given that three seasons have been on Movie Channel. I'm sure some of you have seen them way before they were on Movie Channel, <laughs> um, and yet the DVD hasn't been released. So we kind of agreed for the purposes of this discussion we would assume that you had seen season three. And I hope that that's a fair assumption and we don't give... I don't give <laughs> too much away that you might not want to know about. But to me, one of the most memorable sequences in, is in season three, um, and it involves Pete Campbell and Trudy. And she's been away for the weekend with her parents, and he's stayed home and uh, basically forced a nanny working in the building into a situation where she feels she has to have sex with him. Trudy comes back from the weekend away and she suspects that something, something has happened. She doesn't know what, but she knows things aren't as they should be and something's happened with Pete. And basically, without a word of dialogue about it, she makes dinner. Um, she's kind of... You can see she's resolved in her own mind that she's going to continue as though nothing's happened. She's desperately worried about what might have happened and what the implications might be, but they go ahead and they have dinner and she makes cold salads and basically... Um, Without a word between them, you can see them navigating this possibly terrible thing in their marriage and eventually the conversation pauses and he says he doesn't want her to go away without him again. You can see her fear, you can see her fear that their marriage might be over but the scene ends up affirming their union and it's at once awful because nothing is discussed but also incredibly moving. And that's the kind of thing he does with, I think, the more minor female characters. But um, that theme of, that thing of keeping up appearances, of doing the right thing, of carrying on, is, some, is a, something that runs through the whole series. But aside from the less central female characters, for the purposes of this discussion, I wanted to particularly focus on three of the key women, on Betty, on Joan and on Peggy. And just to get the discussion of the women in particular going. Um, the first clip that I'd like to show is from season two. It's from an episode called Maiden Form as the men of Sterling Cooper work on the account for Playtex bras. If we can have the first clip. We had an interesting idea. We. You want Playtex? He wants to get credit for his idea. You sure about that? Well, we went out the other night after the meeting, you know, a little extra hours after hours, and I looked around the bar. We all did. From what I understand, Playtex has an amazing bra, but it doesn't take you anywhere. Well put. So, I was thinking, women right now already have a fantasy, and it's not going up the Nile. It's right here in America. Jackie Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe. Every single woman is one of them. Watch this. Jackie, Marilyn, Jackie, Marilyn. Well, Marilyn's really a joke, not the other way around. <laughs> that is an idea. 
impressive presentation. Well, you always say it's a 24-hour-a-day job. Apparently, I've already signed off on it. <laughs> I don't know if all women are a Jackie or a Marilyn. Maybe men see them that way. Bras are for men. Women want to see themselves the way men see them. You're a Jackie or a Marilyn. A line and a curve. Nothing goes better together. Which do you think I am? Gertrude Stein. <laughs> I would say you're more classic. Hellenic. Irene Dunn. Oh, I love Irene Dunn. Peggy, you're going to accompany us. Congratulations, Kinsey. Forced your way onto an account. Mr. Phillips is here. Hmm. The Marilyn and the Jackie episode, so, well, the maiden form episode. So this introduction then to the way um, the men see the women and the way they think the women see themselves and the way that Peggy stands apart from them in a room with a group of guys basically trying to present a different position, interestingly, about a bra account. Um, I think early on, those watching the first series, one of the initially really shocking things about it was the way men talk to and about women. Um, it felt like we were being cast back four decades and hearing stuff that we hadn't heard in terms of the way men, and, well, particularly men, talk about women for a long time. Interestingly, though, I was um, lucky enough to be able to interview Christina Hendricks, who plays Joan Holloway, um, just before the second series. I interviewed her for a story in The Green Guide, and I said, it, you know, it's very shocking to hear the way men talk about women. Thank goodness things have changed. And she seemed to suggest that was... She didn't think that was the case at all. She thought that, at least in terms of attitudes, um, things probably hadn't changed very much at all, um, although maybe things weren't spoken about quite as openly as they are in this series. But nevertheless, she thought the same dynamics applied today, even though they were better hidden. But what we do see on the show is women trapped in very tightly defined roles. And we have the sense as we start, you know, in 1960, that we know of the social revolution that's rumbling towards these women and we see them all struggling. Uh, they're very much um, women on the verge, I think. In Mad Men, all the characters are trapped. Many of them have secrets and all of them live in a world of pain. And perhaps the woman who inhabits... The pain the most in lots of ways is um, Betty Draper, Don's wife, who's definitely more a Jackie than a Marilyn. Um, and the clip that I'd like mm. us to have a look at is from the first season and episode nine. It's called Shoot. That's what the episode's called. Have a good day, Daddy. You too. We're going to the community centre to watch them fill the pool. That sounds fun. I Be careful, don't jump off the bed. 
an extraordinary clip. Um, the perfect wife and mother during the family breakfast ritual, doing the washing, having a quiet cigarette, then out into the yard, dead eyes, cigarette hanging from her lips, shooting at the neighbour's homing pigeons. Um, it's a very shocking evocation of the anger underneath that surface, isn't it? Um, I think um, Betty's a fascinating character. I mean, she looks like Grace Kelly. She's the cool blonde, the Hitchcock blonde even. Um, gorgeous, elegant, slightly unattainable, remote, with all sorts of stuff simmering beneath the surface. I initially used to think of her as glacial, but um, now I think she's really more swan-like. She's gliding on the surface and kicking madly underneath it in order to keep moving. We learn early on in the first series that she has a lot of anxieties, so much so that um, she's going to see a, a psychiatrist who, shockingly, is talking about their sessions to her husband. Um, <coughs> Matthew Weiner actually thought that wasn't so extraordinary. He has a very... He's the son of a doctor, and through the series, doctors are depicted very unflatteringly. Um, Matt also, he was of the belief that in that era, if the husband was paying for the sessions, then he would be privy to the information that came out of them. Um, but certainly Betty is a mystery to her husband in many ways. Um, Wyner described them as a couple who have invested a lot in their life together and are very attracted to each other but are really strangers. Um, I think she's a bit like the beautiful accessory, something of an ornament for him. Um, she scrubs up well, dresses beautifully, can be proudly displayed at important dinners and functions. Um, and she's the wife who's stored away in the suburbs, very much removed from his life in the city. Um, and he hides that from her and she suspects that he's hiding it and at other times she knows. Um, and I guess it doesn't really take a psychiatrist to ascertain that that might contribute in some way to her anxiety. Um, but really the, the tragedy of Betty in many ways is that she's gorgeous. She has the look that the magazines want. We know that, in fact, she's been a model and there is an episode where she tries to return to modelling. But she's got the handsome husband that's successful, the man that she's hot for. She's got the nice house in the suburbs, although Matthew Wynant did insist that the house have a red door. And the kids, she's... Yet all of this is going on. She has apparently what we're supposed to see as the dream existence, but she's also the least maternal mother on television, I think. I mean, where she's kind of happily saying to them, be careful, you'll fall off the bed, is unusual. She spends most of her time telling them to go away, go watch television, be quiet or leave the room. And there are very few mothers on television who are quite as unmaternal as Betty. I think only you go as far as the sort of murderous mothers like Livia Soprano, uh, but within, within the range of what we normally see of TV mothers, Betty doesn't fit the mould. Um, she's trapped, she's miserable and she's frustrated. And you get the sense of the kind of life she might want, the sort of woman she might want to be in the third season when there's an episode where she goes to Rome with Don and she's dressed up and she's glamorous and she has none of the responsibilities that she has back in the real world for her and she's speaking the Italian that she learned at college and she shines and you get a hint of the sort of life she secretly might crave. But um, moving on to something very different, Joan. Um, the next clip we have is from season three, episode three. It's called My Old Kentucky Home.
told you that. I've done it. If it happens, I'll go get my little screwdriver and put on a new one. Jesus, I stink. I can finish up out here. I take a nice long bath. <coughs> no, 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 no. Editor goes at the head of the table. He's the chief of surgery. He's where he always sits. Not in your home, Greg. Host at the head, hostess at the foot, or whichever's nurse to the kitchen, and then it's boy, girl, boy, girl. Who says? Emily Post. <laughs> Everyone. Ronald Edinger does not read Emily Post. He's going to expect to sit there, and he's going to expect me and Rick Solo to be his footstools. Well, I won't have their wives think you have a wife who doesn't know how to set a table. Joey, I don't want to have a fight right now. Then stop talking. <laughs> A buffet would be slightly more casual and people could sit where they will. We could put the chafing dish they gave us right in the middle. Perfect. Hey. In a series full of great lines, I think that one's my favourite. <laughs> then stop talking. I'm going to use that. Um, you've got to love Joan. The queen of the office at Sterling Cooper. Confident, curvy, capable, in control. And the colours they've got her in. Wow. I mean, you don't see Joan in pastels. You see Joan in purple and in red and in emerald green. Um, Christina Hendricks told a story of going to the wardrobe department and seeing the lovely little black dress, only to be told, that's for Betty, that's not for Joan, yours is the red one. <laughs> um, she's the modern working woman. She understands her place and her power. And yet, as we see in this sequence, like the other women, she's concerned with doing the right thing or at least being seen to do the right thing, with keeping up appearances. Uh, Christina Hendricks said that Matthew Weiner gave her a copy of Helen Gurley Brown's best-selling book, Sex and the Single Girl, early on before they started shooting when she was developing her character. And um, years before Carrie and her friends were sipping Cosmos in New York, Helen Gurley Brown, who was the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, was providing tips for single working women in the city, how to combine their careers with economic independence and romance. And here, Joan is quoting Emily Post on how to set a table, how to be the perfect wife and hostess. Um, this, when they um, host the dinner party, I don't want to give too much away for those of you who haven't seen it, but it's an extraordinary sequence when the dinner party that they're preparing for there actually happens. Um, and it ends with a, a really heartbreaking scene of her humiliation, basically. And what we have known and suspected... <laughs> since season two for sure um, when he was introduced is that the dream doctor is a dud I mean her dream of, of getting married wealthy, handsome man with prospects of being a surgeon that kind of life that, we've, that she's talked about desiring she's kind of got it but it's definitely not the dream that she'd wanted in fact it's a nightmare in lots of ways I mean in season two we've seen him rape her in the office um, he's threatened by her sexual experience and he's suspicious of her. She told no one about that. But as we know, her dream of marriage to the potentially wealthy up-and-coming surgeon 
is not a dream at all. It's something of a nightmare. Um, and just in talking about Joan, um, I thought it might be worth noting that um, when the scripts for Mad Men went out in pilot season and Christina Hendricks received the script, she thought it was fantastic and she wanted to go for this role. And her agents, she'd just done a few small things. She was starting to kind of build a reputation. She'd been in Firefly, the Joss Whedon series most notably, and her agents thought, OK, up-and-coming starlet. Um, she indicated she was interested in doing it. They said, oh, you're not making anything for AMC and no-one's going to watch it. It's a really bad career move. Um, she pursued it, went to the audition. Actually, she auditioned three times, and once, the second time she auditioned, it was for the role of Midge. So she did a Joan audition, a Midge audition, and then a Joan one, and they cast her as Joan. But when she insisted on taking the role in the series, her um, agents dropped her. <laughs> so I think we have a sense of their vision. But also, I guess, it gives us a sense of how unexpected this series was as a success. And finally, I'd like to have a look at Peggy, please. This is also a, se uh, a scene from that same episode from season three called My Old Kentucky Home. where the dog runs right up to the bowl of food. How do you make him do that? You starve him? So you two got a lot of girls. Oh, shit. Is it that old lady again? Let me in. Go away! It stinks out here. Come in quick. What are you doing? I know what you're doing. Jeffrey Graves, Princeton, 55. Look, <laughs> it's Saturday, for God's sake. You can go home to do the work. Kidding will end up with money. I've got some ideas we can kick around, but you're going to have to tell me your name, sweetheart. I'm Peggy Olson, and I want to smoke some marijuana. <laughs> you won't like it. How do you know what I like? You never ask me how I feel about anything except for sears and body odor and makeup. I'd like to know how you feel about a lot of things. Jesus, give him rest. It's <laughs> just like a strong cigarette. Gotta love Peggy. <laughs> Always knocking on doors that seem to be closed to her. Um, when we met her at the beginning of the show, 
initially demure, very watchful, quietly smart, the single Catholic girl from the boroughs who arrives in New York on what we know is the eve of a major social revolution and she comes with big dreams. Um, in some ways, she's the, uh, she's the descendant of um, other single girls in New York, maybe not so much the Sex and the City girls, but more like Doris Day in the romantic comedies of the 60s even Mary Tyler Moore in the Mary Tyler Moore show. She's quiet and clever and she's seeking experience and advancement. And through three seasons we've seen her growing in confidence and experience. Um, by the time we get to this point, Peggy has got now her own office and her own secretary. Um, however, the revelation of her concealed pregnancy was probably one of the great shocks of the first series. I, I couldn't believe it when we got to the end and discovered what had been going on, that we'd been watching her all the way through and watching the wait and didn't have a clue. Couldn't believe it. Um, however, that sequence takes place with Peggy and Paul working over a long weekend on a campaign for Bacardi Rum. They have to come up with five more vacation situations for the campaign. And what we see in the scene, as we've seen with Peggy all the way through, is she's hungry for new experiences and knocking on doors that are closed to her. And I think in some ways it is not a series, and I think um, what Mark was talking about to do with Don suggests this, it's not a series with a great deal of optimism. It it's it's, looks gorgeous, the surfaces are beautiful, the colours are great, the design's astonishing. You can freeze a frame just about anywhere through it and it will look composed like a painting. It's beautiful to look at, um, but it's dark. I mean, people are anguished and they're in pain and they feel trapped and they're frustrated. Um, when you watch Peggy kind of breaking out a bit and succeeding, negotiating some treacherous waters, you feel a, a sliver, perhaps, of optimism. But I guess the question for her then becomes, as it is for Don, who's always also great at his job, at what cost does it come? So I think, to me, a lot of Mad Men is about anger and sadness and disappointment beneath the surfaces. And the women, even someone like Joan, um, like all of the characters, are trapped in their roles. Here, it's down here. Okay. Sorry. Oh, am I sitting there? I've really made a mess of it. Sorry. I'm going to be quick back in. There you go. Okay. Well, look, thank you so much um, to both Mark and Debbie for um, those very illuminating talks, which, you know, claim to be. Mark's about, about the men and Debbie's about the women, but of course there was a lot of cross-gender material there too. Um, now, I wanted, before we follow up some of the things that, that, that Mark and Debbie talked about, I wondered if you could actually just talk briefly about the opening credits, which we all were watching on a loop for quite some time before we started talking. Um, and I know that we, when we were talking about this earlier, had, all had quite different reactions to those images. And I have to say that every time I watch them, I can't help thinking about the 9-11 falling man or falling people images um, and it sort of shocks me that this has been allowed to remain as the credits given those events um, but uh, you know, there is, there's something kind of ominous and, and weirdly also very sexy about, about those images for me Mark, what were your thoughts? You, you thought of North by Northwest. Well actually Vertigo. Um, Vertigo. It's, I mean it if you recall the scene 
um, in Vertigo when he um, is thinking about Kim Novak. Well, he's always thinking about Kim Novak, but um, <laughs> when it goes into the animation scene, and I mean, they are definitely referencing that sequence of, of Jimmy Stewart falling. But in that kind of context, it interests me, and I was, you know, you watch it every week, and I've, I think I've seen the whole thing two or three times now. It mesmerises you, as I was talking about with Don, but um, I was sort of thinking about the falling and the falling man and, 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 and so much about Don and the other characters uh, um, is about that sense of loss and, and, oh, my God, we're sort of up the creek without a paddle kind of thing. But then in the end, at the end, we have this character who we kind of assume is Don, I think, um, sitting comfortably smoking on a couch. So he's sort of falling on his feet, um, which seems to me, and I never really thought about that, but it seems to me to say something about this show that um, despite the kind of the loss, the lack, there is a, something very, a little comfortable about it or something and that these people do fall on their feet a bit. Debbie, your thoughts about the credits? Um, I, I see it really much as that contrast between someone who looks like he's very much in control and he knows what he's doing and is mm. very confident that he knows about the world and how it works and how to sell people their dreams, which is what he needs to do. Mm. And in fact, he's falling. <laughs> Was that oh. me again? Did I do that? No. <laughs> he's lost. I mean, he's flailing. Um, and despite the confident you know, final image of sitting on the couch. Mm. I actually went through the first series watching it and thinking someone was going to die mm. um, because it really does suggest mm. that sort of free-falling, not in control. It looks kind of good, but it's, it doesn't look like it's going to end well. The other thing it reminds me of is, uh, uh, I think it was originally a movie poster but much used ever since for various political causes, of the giant woman looming over... I don't know what city it is, but yeah. looming over these tiny, tiny little mm. stick figure men and you've got those giant, beautiful legs kind of going mm. up and down in the background there. Mm. So, you know, to me it also in some way comments on the fact that, yes, this is kind of a show about men, but actually the women loom so large mm. in mm. the show as well, don't mm. they? There seems to be um, something about... If you think about the first episode of the series, um, it's the Lucky Strike thing. Don goes to 39 minutes without knowing what he's going to say in the meeting. You know, I'm falling, I'm really losing, and he goes to Midge and, uh, you know, I'm mm. down, and then he gets there and he comes up with it and, you know, he's comfortable. And, and that, I mean, that's an old, um, it's an old bewitched joke. You know, the summary of every bewitched episode is Darren doesn't remember, doesn't know what he's going to do, and then finally, you know, Samantha does something sexy and he gets the idea <laughs> and, he, and they make the presentation and it happens with the Brady Bunch as well. You know, it's that, it's, so that kind of decline and then resurrection thing does happen a bit, I think, in a number of the campaigns as mm. well. Ah, yeah. The pressure of the deadline. Yeah. But also, when he comes up with, I mean, with the Lucky Strikes, it's, it's toasted, isn't it? I mean, when he comes up with it and he explains what he's found and, and why he, how he's gotten there, you're dazzled by it. Mm. I mean, the way it's written and the way he presents it, you just think, this guy's a genius. No wonder he's so good at his job. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about Don because, um, uh, Mark, you obviously t talked a lot about Don and, and that used that phrase about, you know, something not there in Don. And uh, Debbie, you talked about how this, you know, this is not a crime 
series, as every other bloody series on the television is, but it seems to me it, it is a mystery series. And what mm. is the central mystery is what and who is Don and what is not there in Don. Um, I mean, it's, it's not that he's missing a moral framework because he's actually he's got his own mm. code, hasn't mm. he? He's quite gallant and he stands up for the underdog quite often. Mm. You say it's Jesus that's not there. What do you actually... I mean, what's that symbol for? I, I think he... You know, this idea that he doesn't see meaning in the, in the universe. I think he thinks that the, the meaning, the universe is just entropy. And um, the only way he can deal with it is by, is by coming up with a campaign or coming up with some way to do it. There's a wonderful moment all throughout the series where he, he's very intolerant of... of um, Unhappiness. You know, at one point he thinks that Betty might be unhappy, so he comes home and gives her a watch. Now, he knows, because Rachel says to him, you know, you know how people work, and, or you think you know how people work and how the world works. And um, he, he, So he gets Betty the watch. He thinks that's kind of worked, but he doesn't even believe in that kind of ultimately that he can't... Nothing will soothe him. He can't be comforted. He can't use religion... As his, as his salve, he can't, you know, really get into booze in a major way. Um, he can't run away with Helen Menken because she refuses. <laughs> no. I mean, I always think if he just went with Midge, well, you know, if he's, you know... Would, Midge didn't want him either. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there's nothing... It's very hard to... And I like the fact that this series, you know, I can't just call him a melancholic. I can't just call him a pervert. It's, it's, it's much more complex than that and perhaps a little more scary, I think. Mm. I really like that idea um, as you presented it in your talk about him being something of a blank page that we can ascribe whatever Mm. we might want to to it, that there's so much mystery there that you don't exactly know. But I, I see him very much as being... You know, like all of the characters in it, very trapped in the role. He knows what he's supposed to be doing mm. as as the breadwinner and as the provider and as the husband. Mm. And you know, <clears throat> they've got the house and they're getting the they get the new furniture and they they've got all the trappings, revolutionary road style of mm. of what it is to live in in that kind of neighbourhood. And mm. he's getting the promotions and he's making more money. Mm. And then he buys the zappy new car. Mm. And when she's having the crisis with her father and her brother. You know, he's the one who steps in. He's expected to step in and sort it all out. Mm. So he kind of knows about what he's supposed to be doing and the role he's supposed to be playing. But just like all of the other characters in it, he's that's really frustrating for him. Mm. It's not fulfilling mm. the, the things that he needs. None of this stuff and none of these indicators of what you're supposed to have to make you happy and fulfilled are working for any of them. Mm. I wonder if we can um, project up quote number three at this point. Um, because I want to follow up uh, something, Debbie, that you talked about, about the women in Mad Men, um, that whole thing about the blondes versus the brunettes and the, uh, you know, Marilyn versus Jackie. Um, but, of course, even within blondes, there are subdivisions. <laughs> there's, this, there's this great book called On Blondes by Joanne Pittman. I don't know if any of you have come across it. Um, and she argues that... Um, you know, that the flaxen-haired females, like Betty, have been cast in two basic archetypal roles since before Christ was born. To be blonde is either to be a seductive temptress or a divine incorruptible beauty. Eve or the Virgin Mary, Lucretia Borgia or Hildegard von Bingen, Mae West or Grace Kelly. Um, and it seems to me that, well, as you say, poor, poor Betty's been trapped in the Grace Kelly archetype, but I think part of her really wants to be Marilyn. Mm. Actually, I mean, there's a, there's a sexuality in Betty that 
every now and then bubbles up and, you know, she'll confess to, as you say, being really turned on by her husband. Um, and even the whole Betty on the psychiatrist's couch made me think of mm. poor old Marilyn, you know, mm. at the mercy of, of the psychiatrist. Mm. So, but, you know, I mean, Betty's trying to be someone other than Grace, isn't she? Mm. Well, she, she wants to be someone other than Grace Kelly. But it's that same thing, isn't it? You've got all the things that are supposed to make you happy and make you... She's got the two kids. She's got the house in the suburbs. I mean, but, you know, the scene with the gun, it's like, you know, there's something kind of not quite right there. There's something unexpected (laughs) going on. And, you know, the still waters are running deep Mm. with her, which is what makes her fascinating. I was really surprised in um, that... the interview that I was lucky enough to do with Matthew Weiner at the Screen Producers Association conference, he said that after the first series, um, there was a huge backlash against Betty. People hated mm. her. Mm. People people thought that she was, I don't know, wussy for staying with Don mm. or whatever. Mm. And I was surprised that they were so unsympathetic towards her. I mean, I know she looks gorgeous and we can hate her for that, mm. perhaps. But, I mean, she's so miserable. Mm. Her life is... She's subscribed to the dream, ironically, the kind of dream that's being sold by the advertising industry, and it hasn't fulfilled her at all. She's absolutely miserable with her life, and she knows that there's a whole other life that her husband's having that she's not part of. Mm. It's really sad. Um, You talked um, about the character's entrapment, and, you know, one of the places that they're, a lot of them, particularly the women, are entrapped in is is suburbia. Um, All those housewives sitting around chatting and smoking and redecorating and judging each other's lives madly, you know, the divorcee, who everyone's very suspicious of, and, you know, bored to death. Uh, And this is in stark contrast to Manhattan, you know, the other place that... um, lots of people long to be in. Um, And we might just play another little clip here. This is from um, Series 1, Episode 10. This is clip number 2. And this is where Joan is visited at work by her uh, flatmate, who later on turns out to be desperately romantically in love with her, as we discover. But um, it seems to me that this this sets up this idea of Manhattan almost as a a character in in the show Mm. itself. Carol, it's 10.30. Did we have lunch? Because even I can't leave this early. No, I needed to talk to you. Why'd you work? Don't tell me you're late again. Do you need to see Dr. Emerson? No. Good grief. what? You walked 12 blocks in a heat wave? And I see you didn't take my advice about the dress shields. You know how Mr. Aldridge has had me reading the slush pile? Yes, writing the rejection letters you told me. It's depressing. I'm so stupid. This morning, in the submissions meeting, the editorial director asks why we haven't responded to this poet from Yale, Marlon Rice. Mr. Aldridge tells him we never saw it. Then the director asks me for my cover for Mr. Aldridge. I said that I had read it and rejected it. Then they made Mr. Aldridge fire me. Oh, honey, that's awful. He was really sorry about it. Of course, the SOB. I know. I'm going to have to ask my dad for more money again. It's humiliating. Stop it. You shouldn't be embarrassed. There's never enough money. You always seem to manage. These men. Constantly building them up. And for what? Dinner? Jewelry? Who cares? You need to go out and shake all this gloominess. All I want to do is sit in the movies and cry. No movies. 
Let's look for some actual bachelors. Empty their wallets. I hate Manhattan sometimes. Don't say that. City's everything. This city's everything. What is this city to the women and what is this city to the men? Because I think this city for the women is men is the opportunity to kind of, you know, find <coughs> bachelors and and for the men it's sex, you know, for, for each side it's about ways to find sex. Yeah, we were talking earlier about um, uh, that great series with Marlo Thomas, who many of you may know from her appearances on Friends. Um, but she was uh, starred in a great show called That Girl. Um, and I often think about her and I think about characters like Holly Golightly um, in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And, and, and sometimes I think for, for the female characters in these contexts, New York is put up there as is it like a question. Are they there to buy or to sell? I, I, are they the nice suburban um, ossining housewife who's coming to buy? Or are they the prostitute who are there to sort of you know, shake their booty and pick up a man or, you know, um, and we see prostitutes in the show and party girls they're often called, which I really like. Um, but there's that sort of, um, you know, New York is a question, you know, and um, I think, you know, in a sense, I think we probably see examples of both in the series. I mean, I wonder how different this series would be if it had been set in Los Angeles, for example, you know, or how radically that would have changed. Inconceivable. <laughs> but surely the city is also economic independence. <coughs> Mm. The city is where you can do a job and get paid for it rather than be a housewife who's reliant on her husband's income in the suburbs. Mm. I mean, when Betty gets to the point that she thinks that the, the marriage might be over, her options are so limited because she's, she doesn't work, she doesn't have her own money, she's going to need support, she's got two kids. Mm. I mean, you become aware of how confined that world is and, and through watching Peggy move from, you know, the, the family home with her mother and her sister mm. and okay. into the point of having mm. an apartment of her own, sharing the apartment, the way she's branching out into the world, it's because she's got a job mm. and she's moving through the ranks of the job. That's what mm. New York represents as mm. well, that, that sense of possibility, mm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we might um, have a look at another, another little clip and, and have a little bit of a talk about advertising. Um, in the absence of Russell Howcroft, we're all going to have to pretend that we know something about advertising here. Hoping there's some people out there who know something about advertising. But um, this is uh, clip four and it's uh, from series one, episode 13, and it's been referred to a couple of times already this evening. This is when Don's been asked to come up with an idea to advertise the Kodak slide projection wheel as it's first known as. So have you figured out a way to work the wheel into it? We know it's hard because wheels aren't really seen as exciting technology, even though they are the original. Well, technology is a glittering lure, but uh, there's a rare occasion when the public can be engaged on a level beyond flash if they have a sentimental bond with the product. My first job, I was in-house at a fur company with this old pro copywriter, Greek, named Teddy. And Teddy told me the most important idea in advertising is new creates an itch. You simply put your product in there as a kind of cowline lotion. We also talked about a deeper bond with the product. Nostalgia. It's delicate. But potent. Sweeter. 
Petty told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Backwards and forwards. It takes us to a place where we take to go again. It's not called the wheel. Harry's been kicked out of home at that time, you might yeah. remember. <laughs> For sleeping with Hildy. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So, advertising is selling sentiment. Um, and Don, I think, is selling himself. I mean, Don, Don's ultimate product is himself, don't you think? Well, what the, what the um, account guys hate about the creative people is that that's what they do. You know, it's all about passion, it's all about individuality. They, they, you know, the creative guys, as we see with Don, can just walk into the room and not even have it ready and pluck it out of the air and do it, and it's all about the performance. I mean, Don hates the past. He, you know, he really has problems with the past. He doesn't want to talk about the past. Remember when he's, you know, he, um, early on he talks about himself as, as being Moses and, you know, sort of complete denial of the past. And here we see this incredible kind of virtuoso performance of nostalgia and all this kind of stuff. You know, he's fantastic at it and he embodies the whole thing, but it's all, you know, it's the, it's the performance for Don. Because I think this is not long after he's found out about his brother's suicide too. This is like the last remnant of his you know, awful family has now completely disappeared mm. and yet he's mining that to, you know, gets his creative juices going. Um, mm. I mean, there's something really kind of fascinating and slightly creepy there about mm. the idea of mining your own. I mean, I think he does... I think he does have nostalgia and he does have feelings, actually. I think we underestimate him. And mining your own wounds... Mm. In order to sell whatevs, mm. you know. But those, I mean, he is selling himself, isn't he? He's mm. selling his ideas. People come to that agency mm. because he's seen to be great at his job and to be able to give people selling products 
a, a perspective on their product that no one else can give them. Mm. And those images, I mean, I think his performance in that sequence is amazing. Mm. But those images of the family, we've never seen them looking like that. No. No. We've never seen yeah. Don and Betty looking that happy. Yeah. Or he might frolicking with the children <laughs> or <laughs> any of that. Yeah. I mean, they're so kind of remote yeah. and distanced and cold and unhappy. Yeah. You could see him, I, I don't know, I thought it was incredibly sad. It's yeah. like he's looking at it and seeing for the first time what might might have been there in flashes in his family mm. and what's certainly not there. Mm. I mean, everything else that we've seen about them makes mm. us know that that's an illusion. Mm. Yeah. He's, a, he's also a brilliant... I know we keep talking about Don, but I suppose Don is like the centre of everything, really, isn't he? he he's also, a, a, and that's part of it, a brilliant natural psychologist. Mm. But there's this hilarious stuff in this series about psychology in the advertising mm. industry. The mm. scene with the Freudian psychoanalyst who's mm. got this series about the oh, death dish. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he's really resistant to the whole thing. Mm. He wants to be, he doesn't want to, and this is why he's so resistant to psychoanalysis, is that he doesn't want other people making money on his beat. You know, he sees that as his kind of thing. He's meant to be psychoanalyzing the world and selling products and using it, but he doesn't want anyone else getting into the act, I reckon. And I wonder too whether his doubts about, you know, psychoanalysis, that's that kind of psychology, if, as you say, the world is essentially meaningless to Don, then why would you bother searching for meaning on the psychiatrist's couch? Mm. Except that he sends his wife off to the psychiatrist's couch. <laughs> the idea is that she... The problem is with Don is that he's the kind of guy who walks down the street and doesn't just look around at what he sees and what he can observe. He says, oh, here I am walking down the street. Actors often talk like this. I mean, Jeremy Irons talks about this. Lawrence Olivia talks about this, this terrible... It's professional necessity for an actor, and I could see why it would be the same for someone in, the, in advertising, to look at things in a, in a second-hand way all the time and not be able to lose yourself in anything. You're always... And, you know, it's the writer's instinct. It's, you know... Mm. Yeah, he kind of loses himself in his affairs, doesn't he? With the yeah. women... With, mm. you know, the only with, time, With really, Midge, yeah. with Rachel Menken, who he wants yeah. to run away with. Mm. Um, with, you know... Oh, less Bobby. Um, with Bobby, mm. yeah. I mean, it's, it's like it's that other side of him unleashed mm. in a way that he, he has to be less controlled, kind mm. of. Look, if we could um, have the, the house lights up on the audience, I'd really mm. love to, to bring you guys into the discussion at this point, if we can see you. Oh, hello, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, if, are there any questions you'd like to put to, to any of the panellists or any comments you'd like to make, or if you're from advertising in particular, any comments you'd like to make about um, anything to do with the show, whether you think it has a kind of, you know, veracity or whether it's a cartoon version of the advertising industry. Uh, maybe just wave your hand in the air if you've got any comments or questions. I'd like to say something. I um, yeah. was drawn to um, um, Mad Men by um, the way that it has such a style about a period that, was, uh, that I grew up with, my parents, mm. uh, and then saw The Single Man by Tom Ford. Mm. You know, they're selling a product to us, or to me anyway, of a style that most people long for today, but they lose themselves behind all these facades that we have within what we're living in. And if you take, if I, as I look back at it, I think they were more real, and Tom Drake, Tom Draper was a fake, and that's mm. how most people, that's how I see him as a fake. He got by by seeing things that other people didn't see, mm. which made him successful, mm. which people get through.
Everyone's passing as something else, aren't they? Mm. Everyone's kind of making believe that they're something that they're... Everything, everything was there, but they really didn't have it because everything was, everything was new to them. You know, mm. the Kodak, mm. the brass, it was all new. Well, we've got it all now, mm. but when they had it, it wasn't there at all. Mm. So they were, what, they were, what they were designing and what they were coming up with, of course, Donald Draper, he knew about it already because he had already foreseen where he could go with it because he, he was nothing. Mm. And then he saw what he could do with it, and he made mm. something of it. Mm. You know, and Betty Draper, she's most women of that of that era. She's nothing. She's nothing new. You know, we talk about Grace, Grace Kelly. We talk about Elizabeth Taylor. We talk about Sophia Loren. They were women, women who made a difference. They were right out there because they knew, knew what it was to be a woman, unlike today. Women mm. don't know what it is like to be a woman. <laughs> 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 they don't. They don't see themselves as women today. I think probably a lot of women today would just say that there's a lot many more options in how you would like to define yourself as a woman. And you know, one of the things about Peg, poor old Peggy, is that she's constantly being boxed into this corner of um, well, all of them being boxed into a corner of what kind of a person they can be in order to be the kind of girl that the guys want them to be, as we saw that that quote earlier on. But thank you for your comments. Yeah, anyone else? Got a comment or a question? Yeah. I, I like watching it from the perspective of when I was growing up. Thank you. I like watching it from the perspective that when I was growing up, you sort of know what's coming. You sort of know what's around the corner. And that's what makes it so fascinating. And the fact that it's so low-key, you know, things are said that really shock you. And you think, oh, these people did say things like that. Mm. People used to behave like that. Mm. Um, and that's the way we live. Mm. Um, that's the... I mean, how many other people watch it and experience that shock, and and, and is that like a guilty pleasure in some way? Of yeah. We're meant to find those things shocking about it. Um, we're meant to find it shocking when women drink and smoke while pregnant or drink drive, um, all, all those kinds of things, because the show assumes a contemporary perspective. Um, it's not putting us back there as though we ourselves have the same views as the characters, but that's not even what I wanted to, to mention originally. I wanted to just talk about Don and um, the fact that even within the world of the show, he's a character. He, he's... Yeah. Whitman's imagination <laughs> yeah. of, um, of what yeah. a man should be and, and he is mm. the ultimate product. product of the show mm. Mm. And, um, and the way that he's always mm. running away he's always wanting to um, get away from this John Draper character um, mm. and the way that the show continues to flash back to when he was Dick Whitman and all the, the ways that mm. his past continues to catch up with mm. him I find really fascinating in the way that the show is not really about John Draper but about Dick Whitman and his sort of flight into the future. Yeah. And also that notion of Don in in another sense is the legendary Don Draper too. Like, you know, he's everyone. I mean, here's the reason that I mean, they couldn't hold the damn company together with because that's the reason why customers or clients come. And as we're going to see more of this in season 4 too, but that that's another thing that he's got to has to deal with. And he doesn't even really know whether he's an ad man sometimes. You know, he always says, "Oh, I'll I don't want a contract, but you know, if I leave here, I'll never, never go into advertising anywhere else. I'll do something else. You know, it's, it's a, so that's really interesting now about the. I mean, in a sense, we've 
now got at least three versions of this guy. I mean, there are probably more too. And, and I, was, I was thinking before that, um, you know, is that the thing that Don's really kind of missing that you were talking about? You know, what is it that Don's missing? Mm. And it's, it's the fact that he maybe he doesn't have a past, he doesn't have a family that kind of goes back beyond, you know, him as a, as a, as a boy. It, it doesn't go back any further than that. So he's kind of creating his own history, you know, as he lives. He doesn't. Mm. He can't look back at a family mm. history or anything like that. Mm. There's nothing. He's an there. orphan. He's a poor orphan yeah. boy. Mm. Yeah. So that's mm. one of the things he's kind of missing. Mm. Yeah. Can I just comment on that as well? Like when you talk about um, when you were talking about the uh, the scene that you showed with the carousel, I, I I thought that that was one of the most poignant um, scenes of all because. You know, you, you were talking about how he was just, you know, selling it and he was bullshitting and whatever, but really, like, he was just yearning for that, really. Um, yeah. I thought that it was so poignant in it, and we laughed at the fact that mm. it was it Harry that cried and, and ran mm. out of the room, but really, I think that, that Don was on the verge of tears because he, he was really reaching inside himself and sort of going, you know, why am I affected by these photos, mm. these photos of this happiness that, mm. you know, is me in the photos and my family, but, you know, it should be, it should be more. So what, you know, mm. he was lacking mm. so much in that, in that respect. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I, but I, I sort of said in, in my little talk that I think he, he's good in those performances and he, perhaps in addition to when he's with his brunettes, he, when he's on the job... <laughs> That's expression, that expression, sorry. The other job. When he's at work <laughs> in the office and he gets into those moments, he loses himself. And you, we've all had these experiences of, I mean, anyone who's ever acted, you know, you lose yourself in that context sometimes. Um, you can believe, you know, you move your lips and the belief will come sort of thing a bit too. Um, but then I suppose he goes home and nothing ever comes of that. You know, he doesn't really do anything with that. I mean, it's like he's it's out... Yeah, yeah. So it's it's incredibly damaged, yeah. He can speak and he can, yeah. he can act it out. And he's still, he, he's still a, an asshole to his wife and, yeah. and a terrible sort yeah. of, you know, man in a, and a father. Yeah, you know. most definitely. I just want to come back, sorry, briefly to um, something that one of the women up here was talking about um, and that idea of what, of how we react as contemporary audiences to all the kind of, you know, awfulness of what it was like then for, for some people. And I suppose that, you know, as, a, as someone who considers herself a feminist, one of the things that fascinates me about the show is how it, at the very same time it's criticising all the kind of chauvinist values of the early 60s, you know, the objectification of the women and the male gaze and, um, you know, the casual infidelities of the men left, right and centre. So at the same time as it's, it's critiquing those things. It's delivering all of the pleasures of those things, of those values, to us in spades. Mm. The way the camera loves to focus on Joan's beautiful rear, you know, going through yeah. the office, and we're kind of enjoying that too. You know, we're enjoying the, the beauty of that. Simul similarly, um, um, you know, the, the show is simultaneously kind of critiquing the advertising industry's, um, I suppose, amoral willingness to sell you anything knowing you possibly don't really need it, um, all the shiny, useless, glamorous things, uh, and at the same time celebrating 
the shiny, useless, glamorous stuff of life with the art direction. Um, and I just wonder, if, you know, how other people feel about that tension between you kind of being asked to enjoy something that you really feel a bit guilty about enjoying and you might be judging, but you're still loving it, you know? Mm-hmm. Or was that just a lecture? <laughs> but it, it's... Not, yeah. No, no, but I'm talking about us as contemporary audiences. Yeah, that's I've gone back to that and, and, and living their life as they did, smoking, drinking. You know, when I watched that series, I smoked a pack of cigarettes because they like mine up, I like mine I want to. <laughs> that's the way I see it. I don't, I don't put today, I, that's not today for me. That was yesterday and that's the way yesterday was. Mm. So I don't analyse how they all are. I just see it as they played the roles in the, in the yeah, I think it's a comment up the back here. I, just in response to what you were saying, it's a, for me it's the same way that when you watch The Sopranos, you yes. think, isn't it great the way they can take care of their problems? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on a deeper level, you know that's wrong. without talking about the way in which they're presented. And if you kind of up close to Don or, or any of the other characters, you actually don't see the way they're presented. And the thing that I think, the reason I think, for me anyway, that the series works so well is its use of irony. That in fact, as, as people were saying, we know what's wrong here. We can see it from the start. Whenever a character speaks, we know what's wrong because we speak from a superior position. Um, and then, you know, as, as Debbie, I think, you know, was saying, with all the women, and I think it applies to the men as well, they're all trapped within kind of value systems, and we can see that. And the reason I'm moved by it is I can see all these, like, Rainer Fassbender Fass talked about the films of Claude Chabrol as being about, like, studying insects in a glass case. Mm. And I think I'm at that, when I watch Madeline, mm. I'm at that kind of distance. It's almost anthropological. Mm. I, don't, I don't see myself in Don for a moment because I can see, I mean, uh, Mark, you said mm. kind of near the start that mm. all, each of us sees a bit of ourselves mm. in Don. Mm. I don't. Mm. You know, I've, I've, mm. I see him as, he's the, he's the main character and he's a characteristic American hero and he's certainly got trajectory. Mm. I mean, he's a professional man. But he's also so sad. He's got, mm. as you said, he's got nothing when he goes, you know, when he goes home. And, mm. and the series juxtaposes those two all the time. Mm. And it's that ironic sense of distance, which mm. is like bringing a European sensibility mm. to American characters, that mm. seems to me to make it work so well. And mm. I mean, I, I was, I couldn't laugh in that sequence with, with him uh, doing the nostalgia thing when he was delivering that speech. I, I just, I didn't remember seeing it when I watched the series and I've seen every episode and I just found that so incredibly moving. Mm. I mean, that's great cinema as well as being mm. great television. Mm. Mm. Sorry, that's a statement. Irony, I think, is really important. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And there's a lot of playfulness with um, that knowingness about, you know, I think in, in episode one there's that comment about 
you know, it's not as if there's a machine out there that can just make copies of things instantly for you mm. and, you know, a series later, there's that machine. There's also, you can do a uh, Mad Men avatar of yourself if you go to the Mad Men website. I don't know if you've discovered that yet. It's really fun. Yeah. Oh, is it, Chuck? Yeah. I was interested to hear you say that it reminded you of the 60s because I think, I mean, I think it's a very stylized 60s. It's a very deliberate sort of perspective like uh, a single man on the 60s and I, you could go and see the Coen brothers, a serious man mm. and see a very different yes. looking 60s mm. yes. that to me felt as authentic. I mean I think that thing of expecting it to be somehow real is, is not what it's about. Mm. I mean they've created this extraordinary world. It looks mm. wonderful. You know the design in it, the, the costumes, the props, the set design are all so meticulous um, that that's one of the things I, I respond to about it. whether or not it's actually real. I don't care. Mm. Mm. I don't. I don't. Mm. I'm in its world, and I'm happy to go with it. Mm. Mm. I actually watched it with my mother, who was um, a secretary in the sixties, mm. and she just says that's her world, and mm. that's exactly how she remembers it. Mm. And she. Um, after she married my father was this glamorous Joan, because Dad insisted. <laughs> but um, she would make all her own dresses, wear the clothes like that. The sexism that was there was exactly like that. Mm. And she loved watching it so much that then I got out my episodes of Bewitched, which Darren and mm. you, son of a gun, you know, mm. Sterling and mm. so on and so forth. There's not that much difference. It is very similar. There's a scene in Bewitched where they're trying to raise money and the guys all get together and they're all relaxed and this, that and the other and it's, we'll show you how it's done, have a bit of scotch, call up a mate, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And it's like in this series, it's the same sort of thing. The worlds really aren't that different. It's just, it's a bit more honest. Mm. Mm. But I sort of think in that terms of, of distance... And I was really interested in what Christina Hendricks said when I talked to her about, you know, we'd seen the first series, we'd watched the way the men talked about the women. It was kind of shocking. So many of the things that they did in it, you know, I think it's in the first season where the Draper family goes for a picnic. There's this, and, and they just sort of, it's gorgeous and it's yeah, idyllic it's and great. there are ducks and yeah. there's a lake and it's a lovely afternoon and then they get up and walk away and, and leave all their garbage there. And, yeah. and it's quite yeah. shocking to us to see that 
today. Yeah. And Matthew Weiner said, actually, they had to shoot that scene over and over again because the actors kept looking back behind them. <laughs> and he was kind of like, no, keep going. Don't look. Don't look. Um, but I reckon that's, a, in a sense, I was interested in her perspective of it's not that different today when mm. I said, wow, it's really shocking, we've come so far. Mm. I think that kind of comfort in a distance of, oh, somehow we're not as anti-Semitic and we're not as homophobic mm. and we don't treat women the same way, mm. I think in some ways that's a false comfort. That's mm. a sense of mm. condescending to it from a safe distance when actually it's asking us to question all that stuff about the world we live mm. in now as mm. well. Mm. Mm. Are we looking at a caveman version of ourselves in the sense that the world has similarities to that time, but we've understood what's right and wrong more, and we look back mm. at it, we cringe a little bit, but we're all old enough to sort of remember a bit what it was like and, and know that we've improved from that and learned from it. So it's, it's, a, it's a time capsule of sorts. Well, we think we've improved. Yeah. <laughs> we hope we do. I think that's probably the most um, you know, difficult thing is that I, I constantly watch it and go... I don't think we've come very far at all. Mm. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm often, you know, totally blown away by how similar it is, you know, mm. in so many respects. I think, mm. you know, we might be able to pretend that a lot of things have changed, but I think what it, it's saying all the time is, look how little has changed. Mm. Mm. Can I just say something? Uh, the thing that I th- think that we've we've explicitly touched on, but I, I think is implicit in a lot of the different comments, is the theme of generational issues within the within the series itself. I mean, to me, you've got a very interesting triumvirate of Bert, the uh, Bert Cooper, Roger Sterling, the second war vet, Don. You know, and, and and of course, you know, the whole first episode is about. Don's problem with Pete Campbell, and I think it's really interesting to see different people of different ages articulating really different responses to the thing, which is, you know, I think very much what it's about. But there's that real theme of um, oh, kids these days, and I think Don talks about that a lot. He sort of says, oh, "I bet you there are people in the Bible who are complaining about kids these days," and of course there are. But um, that that sense of um, I think those generational issues are very important, particularly when we start talking about our responses to the text. Um, uh, from our very different kind of perspectives mm. as well. Another one of the things that we wanted to talk about, and maybe we'll just play our final clip before we, we have this conversation, which is clip number one. And, and this is the way in which the series weaves in huge historical events, you know, but through the prism of sitting in the lounge room in suburbia watching it on telly or the prism of watching the ads being made for the elections. Mm. Um, so if we can... This is the, the, where the men are sitting down to watch the Kennedy and the Nixon mm. TV election ads. Do you like a man who answers straight? A man who's always there. Will raise your hand against the others and would you prepare? It's like a makeup. It's a rear hand. Just wild about hair. It's light, it's fun, it doesn't cloud. 